0: here today. Uh, like I said earlier in introduction, my name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And uh, today I'm going to be wrapping up a series that we started a few weeks ago called Bad Advice. And uh, the first week of the series, we talked through a filter of how to recognize bad advice while it's coming, because it would be a whole lot easier to filter out bad advice than follow it and discover that it was, in fact, bad advice, right? And so that's why we started with that. And last week, Jason um, pressed into one of these Uh, advices that can tend to derail us in life. of ignore it, it'll go away. And uh, that tends to never work, but yet we tend to follow it. That we're like, oh, I'll just ignore that relational problem, or I'll ignore that conflict, or I'll ignore that marital issue, and it'll just work itself out. And it never does. And today, I want to talk about perhaps the worst or the baddest of the bad advice that we can get. I don't know about you, I don't know what the baddest advice that you've ever gotten, but probably for me, one of the worst pieces of advice that I ever received was when I was younger, and we were in the back of a truck, and it was back when that was legal, and you could do those things, and um, parents could do those things without being arrested, and and so we were all in the back of this truck, and uh, we had turned into this dirt road, and some friends of mine, which I thought they were friends, um, looked at me and said, you know what, if you jump out of the truck, and you hit the ground and immediately start running. You could keep up with us, and I bet outrun the truck. And like my little brain is computing that, and I'm like, yep, sounds about right. You know, just hit the ground and move my feet really, really fast, and I'll be able to go. And so I'm, I'm preparing. The truck's moving slow enough. Um, I'm thinking, you know what, I got this. I got my husky pants on, which mean I had some extra room in my legs to really kind of get some energy moving before I hit the ground. And so I jump out of the truck, start moving my feet really, really fast, hit the ground, faceplant into the ground, almost get run over by the truck, and continue to bounce along the side of the road. And uh, they're laughing, and I'm wanting to cry, and I realized that that was the worst advice ever. And my mom hops out, and she's like, what were you thinking? I was like, I was thinking that if I hit the ground with my feet moving really, really, really fast, I could keep running. That's what I was thinking. And she was like, that's the worst idea ever. And I think that all of us have experienced getting bad advice and finding ourselves in a place where we're like, what did I just do? That was the worst idea ever. And today, as we're wrapping up the series, I want to kind of press into, I think, the worst bad advice that we can sometimes get. It's this piece of bad advice that is incredibly powerful because it's everywhere. It's on our television screens when we see CEOs stepping down, when we see presidents being impeached in foreign nations or even our own present nation, when we see it uh, exposing a congressman or a mayor or, or a city councilman to a scandal that collapses what everyone knew was going to be an incredibly bright future with so many exciting things in store. It's this piece of bad advice that doesn't just fill our TV screens, though. It spills out into our living rooms and our bedrooms, our classrooms, our boardrooms. It's destroyed marriages. It's ripped apart families. It takes away our bright futures and leaves us with a regret-filled past. It's this piece of bad advice that Leads to unemployment. There are so many things left in its fallout. And its danger is that it's everywhere. It's at the heart of one of the most successful real estate slogans, uh, city slogans in modern history. When Vegas says, hey, what happens here stays here. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. That it's got different forms, but at the end of the day, it's rooted in this one central Belief that what they don't know won't hurt them. And that piece of advice that we've given ourselves, that others have given to us, that commercials have played on televisions, that storylines and movies have lived out, is perhaps one of the worst pieces of advice that you and I can buy into. Because it always leaves a fallout of a past filled with regret. And that if we're going to be a people that we step into this year and we live lives with better decisions and fewer regrets, then I think it starts with dealing with this piece of advice that can easily creep into my life and that can creep into your life and that no doubt has probably infected some of your lives right now. This idea of what they don't know, what she doesn't know, what he doesn't know, what they doesn't, what they don't know, it won't hurt them. Fortunately for us, this is not modern bad advice. It wasn't a Vegas slogan invented that somehow has caught and grabbed hold of us. This is actually ancient bad advice. It's been around for a very, very, very long time. And one of the wisest men, uh, one of the wisest people who have ever lived, recognized the danger that this piece of advice held for people's lives and made it the center point, the center point of parenting advice, and the lessons for his children. But this central bad advice, he said, look, the next time you hear this bad advice, I want you to think twice, is what we're going to discover today. And and I think that the advice he gives them, this challenging them to think twice about this one piece of bad advice, is also incredibly impactful for our own lives today. Uh, If you have the Encounter Church app, Uh, If you don't, you can download it at EncounterChurch.com backslash app. Uh, It's already in your message notes. It's in Proverbs chapter 6. And if you've been to Encounter Church, uh, you've probably heard me speak from Proverbs a lot. I love the book of Proverbs. Um, I think about it um, daily. I pray through it daily. I try to memorize um, specific Proverbs. I don't know about you, but people pay a lot of money to get around people who are smarter than them. Right, we, we spend a lot of money to go to conferences to hear some of the wisest things that are happening and unfolding in our personal and professional lives. And most of the books that I read um, tend to somehow, usually I can find traced back to a proverb stated by this king over 3,000 years ago. And so naturally, if I can get around some of the wisest words ever spoken, then I'm going to do it. And that's why the book of Proverbs is one of those books that even if you're here today and you're not even sure where you stand with this whole God idea, I would encourage you, memorize a proverb a week. This will change your life. Because it's the bedrock of most of the theses of um, books that I read that come out of Harvard Business Press. I mean, I've got a stack of books that I could point to and say, that's from Proverbs chapter 18, and that's from Proverbs 22. And, And this one, Proverbs 6, is the beginning of Solomon who's the writer of the vast majority of this book, uh, kind of laying out the central lesson for his children. Proverbs started out as a parenting guide. It was the wisdom that Solomon collected for his children. And it was meant to help them and to help us navigate life, and specifically this piece of bad advice. And before I read Proverbs 6, I want you to understand why this was such a like, central key point. Because Solomon's one of the wisest guys who's ever lived. And when you read through the book of Proverbs, you pick up and you're like, man, this guy understood some things. He had a way of grasping concepts in reality. But Solomon wasn't just the wisest guy. He had also personally experienced the aftermath and the fallout of this bad advice that he's about to speak to his children. Solomon, if you've never heard of him, is the son of David, who is one of Israel's greatest kings. The modern nation of Israel has a long history. As a people, they've existed for thousands upon thousands of years. And their greatest king was David. And David, because of an adulterous relationship with a woman named Bathsheba, ends up um, having Solomon as a child. And so Solomon is literally born out of of his father's infidelity. He witnesses the personal fallout, not just in their immediate life, but he watches it play out in the lives of his brothers. Because as Jason talked about last week, that it doesn't just stop with David. It creeps into other areas of the family. And brothers are making some of the same mistakes that their father made. Solomon had seen the fallout of people following this bad advice. And so that's why he makes this the central crux of his parenting advice to his children. And he repeats it over and paints it in vivid imagery because he wants his children to grab hold of the dangers that he had watched destroy his family's life before him. And so he says to them, in what we're about to read, whenever you feel tempted to follow this bad advice, I want you to think twice. And over the course of Proverbs 6, verses 23 to 29, because I just want to Camp out in verses 23 to 29 uh, this morning. We see the two thoughts he wants to give his children. Um, Verse 23, for this command is a lamp. This teaching is a light and correction and instruction are a way of life. Keeping you from your neighbor's wife, from the smooth talk of a wayward woman, do not lust in your heart for her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes. And then I'm going to skip this word for it can be had with a loaf of bread because I saw some children, but another man's wife preys on your very life. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without burning his clothes being burned? And can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So this is what happens when someone sleeps with another man's wife. Like he's, this is a strange first conversation right? Can we just acknowledge that? I mean, Solomon says, hey, son, I want to talk to you about life. And this is what he launches into. And it's really easy with us to kind of back end our current reality into this passage. But what Solomon is doing is actually quite brilliant. See, Solomon recognizes that this strong desire that's about to start consuming his children, um, he uses this as an illustration, not to key in on this one desire, But he uses this as an illustration that this is just the first of many adult desires that are going to start to to grab hold of you. That when you step into puberty, right, there's certain desires that are awakened in us as adults. And this is just the first of them. But it's not the only one. As adults, we have a desire for respect. We have a desire and a longing for responsibility, for recognition, for progress, for growth, We want to win. Some of you really want to win, right? And we have a desire to be loved and accepted and recognized. And some of us even have a desire for fame or security or for stuff or for control. Those are all desires that for a child's life, it's not necessarily present and all-consuming. But for adults, many of us can resonate with those desires. And Solomon's wanting his son and his daughters to be aware of the power that desires can bring into their lives. This is his first thought that he's wanting to unpack for them. Is He says to them at the beginning that these commands I bring to you are for life. And he's like, your desires that are getting ready to be awoken inside of you, these things that you're going to start to long for and feel, those aren't bad Those are good, but you need to realize that you're getting ready to step into an adult world and those desires for love and for respect and for recognition and for security and for control and for things like those desires can be powerful. And that we have to recognize that we are dealing with inherently powerful things. And that while they may add to the quality of life, they can also take it away to. He wants his children to be aware of. And you're about to slide into the seat of a car and a car is a a great responsibility, but it can be dangerous. And these desires and these longings. They're going to stir inside of you. This is really helpful parenting advice, because he says, I want you to have life and I recognize that one of the barriers for life can be the very thing that God has given you to enjoy life with, which is desires. And so he uses this very visually captivating argument that you're a prince and people are going to notice you. And it could be really easy for you to buy into this idea that what they don't know doesn't hurt them, right? Even embedded in this illustration is the whole veil of secrecy. No one will know. It's just this private thing that you'll have. And He says, look, that's dangerous. And I want you to think twice when you hear that bad advice. And the first thought is for there to be a recognition that desires are a gift from God. They're good. Some of us have grown up and living in two extremes. There's the one extreme that says um, desires should not be hindered. Let them go. And then there's the other extreme, and some of you probably grew up in religious context, and desires were made out to be inherently evil. That All the long list of don't do's. As if God is more concerned about what you should not do than what you should do. If you've ever read just the first book of Genesis, and I know for some people they can get caught up in the Garden of Eden, but just look at the character of God. He gives them Free reign to do everything in the garden. He just says there's one thing you shouldn't do. But many of us, because of growing up in some inherently kind of oppressive religious context where you're kind of a, kind of beat over your head and desires are bad and money is bad and all these things are just bad, 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 bad. You can forget that God is the source of them and that they are inherently a gift from Him. But they're powerful. And He wants His child to recognize that you're dealing with something that's really, really impactful for your life. And you don't need to be aware of what other people know about your desires. You just need to be aware about where your desires go. So um, my undergrad was uh, chemistry, and I really still, to this day, read a lot of scientific journals, and I'm a strange nerd who's fascinated with the periodic table. And in fact, if I could talk my wife into allowing me to have a periodic table shower curtain, all right? I'm not joking. We've had this. This is a source of tension. Counselor says it's going to be, it'll be okay down the road. But for years, I've said, sweetie, you know what we're lacking? A periodic table shower curtain. Just so when I'm taking a shower, I can remind myself of all the glorious elements that exist. I mean, I've read books about the periodic table. I am fascinated by the periodic table. I love it. And so, um, like, this idea of elements and how vastly different elements are um, is something I think is really fascinating. One specific element that you could argue has been a revolutionary element in the last 120 years is uranium, right? Uranium, when it was first discovered, for, like, for thousands of years, humans had no awareness of what uranium was, Um, We actually never even fully synthesized it out. It was kind of buried into and discarded in what was called pitch blend, which was just this black rock that was, as people were mining for gold and silver, they would toss it out inside. They didn't realize embedded in that pitch blend was uranium. And then in the early 1900s, um, late 1800s, early 1900s, you have kind of this rise of the radioactive age. Uh, Marie Curie, somebody you've probably heard of. There were a lot of researchers digging in. The uh, kind of modern idea of the atomic nucleus comes into play. And all of a sudden, uh, the energy of the atom is unlocked. There's nuclear power. There's an ability to, to fuel entire cities off the source of this uranium distilled down. There's breakthroughs in medicine. There's diagnostic tools that are invented that allow doctors today to see things that are broken, to see things that are damaged. Then they can apply that same radioactive material to actually treat the cancer that they discovered with that same radioactive material for inspection of the body. It's this incredible thing. It fuels space probes and Mars rovers. Like I'm like, this is incredible what this little tiny thing can do. But all of us have also seen the flip side of what it can do. That it's powerful and that it's leveled Japanese cities. But I think probably the most visually uh, captivating power um, and almost terrifying impact of uranium was seen April 27th, 1986, Over the course of 24 hours from April 26th to 27th, uh, Chernobyl, which was a power plant in uh, what's modern-day Ukraine, about 60 miles outside of Kiev, um, experiences what becomes a nuclear meltdown. One of the reactor cores catches on fire, um, and disaster, explosion, radioactive dust is thrown in the air that can literally be detected almost all around the globe. Now, what most people don't know is that Chernobyl, when it was built, was built in the middle of nowhere. And so as a result of that, a city named Pirpat had to be created to house all the workers. So a city was literally born overnight to fuel this power plant with workers. 50,000 people lived in Pirpat. On the afternoon of April 27th, uh, Russian soldiers and workers arrived to tell people they had to evacuate immediately. 15 public schools, a hospital, mall with 25 stores, all of this entire town Evacuated and told, in three days, you'll be able to come back. The radioactive fallout from Chernobyl continued to creep and creep and infect and fall. And over 30 years later, that town of Pierpat still is abandoned today. And you're seeing footage, drone footage, of that city behind me. This city will remain uninhabited for thousands of years. You see, the same power that has brought electricity, that has enabled us to have significant medical breakthroughs, when it breaks outside of the parameters it was intended for, brings death and destruction. And leaves a fallout that makes things uninhabited. I think radiation is a really good visual of what? Solomon's trying to teach his child about desire. Solomon wanted them to be aware that desires have the power to bring life, but it also has the power to bring death. This is inherently powerful. So we can cut off the video, but I just wanted you to see what the fallout of something in its wrong place And it's wrong parameters can do. And it can be in a large explosion or it can be kind of a slow death in the creep. But desires, when they go beyond what they were intended. What happens is they begin to steal and kill the very life that they were intended to bring. And that's what Solomon tries to tell his son, right? He he says that in verse 26 that this literally will will prey upon your very life. It will rob from you. What was intended to bring life will actually take life from you. And you may be saying, well, okay, maybe, but what they don't know doesn't hurt them. How does that apply? Well, here's how it applies. Our desires, when they go beyond the boundaries of what's intended, we, we start to, to step into dangerous areas. It's the little white lies we tell because we want recognition, and we want respect, and we want people to to see us for how we want to be seen, so we tell these subtle white lies. We take that desire for recognition, and we step outside of the bounds, and those little white lies that we call white lies, they rob from us trust from others, because when they discover that we've lied to them, or we've distorted the truth, or we've left some things out. It affects the trust in a relationship. Those moments where in the midst of pain and we want peace, we want security, and we step out of the bounds and we use a substance to start to give us escape. And what we find is that we actually start to rob our capacity for healing and for grieving and for following what's emotionally healthy. The times where we step outside of the bounds, where we desire respect, we desire fame, and so we work hard. We work so hard that in the pursuit of respect from those outside our home, we lose respect from those inside our home. I mean, one of my definitions of success is that those who know me the best would love and respect me the most. And that's my family. Because I recognize that my desire for respect is God-given, but when my desire for respect means I care more about people who don't know me respecting me than I do for those who do, then it leads me to do things that go beyond the parameters of what God intended. It's that little lingering glance for someone that you're not married to that turns that person that steals their personhood and makes them just an object for your pleasure. It's pornography. Nobody you know. But in the end, it steals from you little pieces at a time with each additional click your capacity for intimacy with your loved one. It it's. This inherently powerful thing that when we step outside of its bounds, it brings death. It takes from us the very thing that we intended to pursue by choosing it. And for those who maybe grew up in a church context, you maybe even heard this word. um, The Bible calls it sin. But that's what it means. That it's these things that were given to us by God that just take from us what God intended us to have. And I know that maybe growing up, especially if you grew up in kind of uh, this oppressive religious context, that sin for you is this deeply emotionally weighted word that invokes a lot of imagery. But at the end of the day, sin is these things that rob from us the very things that God intended us to have. Because we go beyond the bounds and the scope. And the antidote to this to get really practical, the antidote to this bad advice is found in the second thought, where he says, I want you to think twice before you follow this bad advice. He gives him this illustration in verse 25 that um, we can, can kind of skip over it and just think it's all part of this like, flow, but it's actually this really helpful device, this second thought that I think he gives his son. He says, do not lust in your heart or let her captivate you with her eyes. And what's implied is that there's this moment that's playing out in front of him. And he's teaching his children the second thought of uh, something I want to teach you. that It rhymes, so that just makes it even better, right? If something rhymes, it's obviously right. Um, uh, the statement of if, when, and then. If, when, and then. If, when I am encountering an opportunity that goes beyond the, the place and the parameters of this desire, then I will respond this way. And he's like, son, if you are in that moment and this is what you're experiencing, then you go ahead and decide before you get in that moment what you're going to do. And that's what he's doing. This, this hasn't happened yet for his children. He's saying, I want you to decide now how you're going to respond. How are you going to respond is that you're not going to allow your mind or your eyes to go there. It's the, if when you're alone and no one's home, and you're feeling lonely, then you will not turn on your computer. Or if when you've had a fight with your spouse, then you don't have that lingering, flirtatious conversation with your coworker. You, you start to, to realize that all of us, all of us live with a tension of a desire wanting to go to a place that you and I know it shouldn't go. And he tells his children, decide now, not in the moment, how it's going to go. Decide now. And so what area in your life, what area in your life do you need to think twice about this bad advice playing out? We all have different longings. And it's in those areas of that deepest longing that we're often, we feel the tension The Bible calls that temptation, but we feel the tension to take the desire beyond where it should be. And so what is it for you? And what would it look like for you to implement an if, when, and then? For me, I I have tendencies. I want to, I could easily overwork. Like I like working and I like kind of pressing in, but it helps me. To, to have some kind of parameters in my life that says, okay, I'm going to eat dinner this many times at home in the week. So if, when, it's dinner time, then I'm done. And then we're going to do family time. And then later on that evening, maybe, I can jump back in and work some more. But if, when, then. And it's simple, and it's almost offensively simple. But here's what's fascinating. This has actually been applied uh, to people struggling with drug addictions. And here's what they found. That drug addicts, when taught this method, see an 80% reduction in, in falling off the wagon and taking advantage of opportunities to go and do drugs. Like They, they see the ability instantly. Another one? Here's here's beautiful. Like, you, you may be here today, and you don't even believe in God. Okay, but here's, here's another profound one. Um, so they've done research that, uh, that found, they asked people two questions. It was a longitudinal study. They were like, how would you rate your current relationship? Um, you know, with your romantic partner. And how often or um, how many glances or tendencies have you had to, to kind of drift your eyes? In the course of a week? Kind of these two separate questions. And so people would rate the quality of what their happiness in their relationship and then their tendency to start to kind of linger with their glances. And what they found is that the best predictor of infidelity was not this question of how happy they thought their relationship was. The best predictor was what were they looking at and how often? That was actually the better predictor and so uh, as kind of a subsequent this was kind of a long-term study that they, but this other study that I think provides a really interesting glimpse into this if, when, and then, is that people were, were told whenever you're tempted to kind of look at someone that you're you're not married to, like if you're kind of in that kind of stage. Uh, if, when you're tempted to do that, then start to pray for your partner's well-being was kind of how the study was. These people were instructed. People that didn't even necessarily have to believe in God found that just by praying for their partner's well being, they were, they found themselves to be a solid relationship, greater faithfulness in their relationship over the long term. They didn't even have to believe in God. But the practice was just simply an if, when, and then. And that's his second thought. He says, he's like, Hey, kids, you're going to have moments and temptations. And all of us have been in those moments. And if you're a parent, you probably see this moment play out with your children daily. He says, decide now how you're going to respond. Don't wait for that moment. And those are the two thoughts. And look, desires are a gift from God. But be aware when you find yourself in a place they're not d- intended to be. Decide now how you're going to respond to it. So let me end with this ridiculous, crazy moment in my life this week. So um, I had this, I'm going to say phenomenal. You may judge differently. I had this phenomenal idea. I was like, how do I capture the power of desires? And as you've already seen, radiation. That's a beautiful, right? I mean, even Solomon, he's like, son, can you scoop fire in your lap and not be burned? Like, that's thats the same idea. I'm like, that's brilliant. But radiation, thats that's it. Like, that's how you capture how this invisible small thing can make such a profound difference, right? I'm like, way too excited about it. I told you I want a periodic table shower curtain. And so I get online and said, you know what I should do? And i build this elaborate plan in my head because I care about speaking to you every week and I work hard at it. And I'm like, I should bring a piece of uranium on the stage. That would be awesome. The mic would be dropped. When I open up the box, and it's like, ah, you know? And so I get on Amazon, and I type in uranium. And guess what? You can order uranium from Amazon. They have everything. And so I noticed that there's a shipping conflict that there, because Amazon, for valid reasons, outsources their uranium, they're like, we can't promise you, like, your prime delivery. We'll give you a window. And it was like a two-week window. And I'm like, man, i gotta, I got to build a backup plan. So I ordered two samples of uranium from two different suppliers, right? And um, I'm so excited. I, I, like, I, I was flying last week. I was in a meeting, and I, I flew home uh, this past Monday night. And I walk into our little space, and there's the box that has radiation slapped on it. I'm like, my uh, uranium's here! Woohoo! And because I'm wise, I also ordered a Geiger counter. Because I wanted to make sure I knew what the radiation was, like you know, beep, like to know how much radiation I was exposing myself and my family to, and um and so I'm like so smart. Geiger counter, uranium, um and they both come. Like I get my Geiger counter first because that's what you should do before you get the uranium shipped to your house. Well, I happen to land. I walk in and I'm like, baby, my uranium came. I can use my Geiger counter now. And she's like. I married you. Like, what is, what's happening right now? Why are you dangling a piece of uranium in our living room? And I'm like, this thing is hot. I mean, it's like, it's producing, according to my Geiger account, there is more radiation coming off this thing every hour than what a human should be exposed to in one year. I'm like, this thing is hot. I mean, I'm, like, so excited. And then I'm, like, staring at the Geiger counter, and it's, con- it's like, continuing to climb. And I'm, like, "Oh junk Like, I'm talking and reading about Chernobyl. Chernobyl's about to go down in Dedham. Like, I'm looking at it. <laughs> and Jenny's, like, you've got to get that thing out of our house. Like, you-, you brought radioactive material into our house. And I'm, like, oh. so I-, I go and grab a metal safe that we have. And I throw the uranium in the metal safe. And I, like, carry it down to my car. And my car is parked a few blocks away. Like, I park my car a few blocks away to kind of contain the radiation that I, I sense is pouring off of it. And then I go home, and I realize that, like, Maybe there's radiation dust in my house. My Geiger counter shows everything is, like, lit up like a Christmas tree. I'm lit up, so I'm, like, ripping off my clothes like I'm having this, like, purge moment. And everywhere in my house, it's like beep, 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 beep. And I'm like, I'm killing my family. The next day, I have a meeting down at the Cape, which I don't even think about when I back in the radioactive material into my trunk. And so now I'm concerned because I have nowhere to take my radioactive material. And I'm like, I guess I'll just ride all the way to the Cape with my Geiger counter on. And I'll, I'll just pay attention to my radiation levels. And if it gets intense, I'll just get out of my car. Because logically, that's what you do. And, um, and so I'm driving down to the Cape, and every, it's like every time a radioactive material kind of passes through me and it, it pings. And I'm like, oh, my. And it's climbing as I'm driving, and I'm trying not to think of it, but you know what happens, right? It's like the whole medical school syndrome. My fingers start tingling. My face starts feeling weird. I'm pretty sure I felt my liver doing something. I didn't even know you could feel your liver. And it starts doing something. I'm like, I'm getting radiation poisoning right now. It's happening. And I'm like driving, and I'm, I'm, I'm 45 minutes into the ride. And so I start to panic. I'm like, there, well, there's a, a cranberry bog. I could like toss it. No one will ever know right? Did I tell you this was this past week? We had a terrorist attack in New York and then I'm getting uranium shipped to me on that Monday, just to (laughs) give you context. And I'm like, that's a stupid idea. Somebody will find it. And then I'm like, what if I bury it? Just stop and bury it. No one will know. And I'm like, ah, then it might like leak into the water. And then I'm like watching the news one night and I realize I killed an entire like town and I'm, like, still driving. I get all the way down to the Cape. And I'm consumed by how much radiation's poison is creeping through the car. And I, I notice something's wrong with the Geiger counter. Even when I'm not around it, it's still showing radiation. And at this point, I've, I've done enough research, and I understand radiation enough. And i I'd kind of done the, the full, like, purge to know that I don't have any more radioactive dust on me. I wonder if my Geiger counter's broke. Which then... And, puts inside of me this intense, dramatic sense of like, oh, junk, I don't even know how bad it is. Right? So I drive back. My face is tingling. My, my hands are tingling. My, my car radio is not working right. My phone has to keep, I have to keep resetting it. And I'm convinced at this point, radiation has literally turned my Buick into something that's glowing. I'm like all the metal is not even containing it. I get home that day and the second sample of uranium has arrived. I'm like, I'm dead. Like, I'm dead. I already know I'm dead. I've killed everybody in my building. My daughter's going to grow a third arm while she's sleeping. I'm probably like going to glow tonight when I get in bed. I mean, I become so consumed, and I'm trying to find someone who will take my radioactive material. Like, I am Googling. I am trying, you know, like, where can you ship... You know, spent uranium waste, and it turns out there are places for that, but you you need to have a license to get rid of uranium waste. And, and then I'm driving down the road, and I'm like, well, what if somebody hits me in the rear end, the cops show up, and I'm like, back away, sir, there's radioactive material in my trunk. Like, that doesn't go well in any of the scenarios. Religious leader found with radioactive material in his trunk. I'm like, this is a horrible idea. I can't get rid of this. And every time I get in my car, I feel it. I lay in the bed at night and I think about how many people have walked by my car this weekend, have contracted cancer. And I finally get to this point where I find a place that I can send it back to. But it was about towards the end of this past week where it hit me as I'm driving down the street that what I have been experiencing some people call this life. That some of us Carry around with us decisions that we've made, regrets that we have, that are incredibly toxic that no one, no one can touch it, and you know it, and so you hold on to it, and you're like me this week. Everywhere you went, it's always with you, and it's eating away at you on the inside, and you know, because you are living on this side of the fallout, that what they don't know won't hurt them is wrong because it's hurting you and they're losing you in the process because of the fallout. And, and as I was driving down the road, my mind shifted from the radiation flooding through my body to the weight of some of us sitting in this room and listening today who have far more toxic stuff in our lives than what I had in my trunk. have... Things that we've done that no one else knows about, but that we do. And that they've been eating away at us. And if that's where you are, you're living in the aftermath of desires that you allowed to go way too far, then I'm going to speak to you for a second. Because every week we talk about who Jesus is and and how he really does desire to bring hope and help into our life. And what I discovered this week that there was someone who was able to receive the toxic waste in my life because they had the facilities to handle it. I want you to know that God can handle your stuff, that you may not feel like anyone else around you can, but he can that he has the capacity to take our brokenness, to take the fallout of our lives, and to bring repair. Remember when Solomon says, I desire for you to have life. Solomon's just mimicking God. God is not waiting to zap you with a lightning bolt. He's not saying, yep, serves you right for getting that radioactive stuff into your life. He desires to step in and exchange death for life. And I taught you a biblical word, a word that's used in the Bible called sin. I want to teach you another word. It's called grace. And that's what that is. It's an exchange. Our brokenness, our baggage, our toxic waste. He says, I can take that. And I, I can give you grace. And I can give you forgiveness. And I can give you love. and He gives that exchange. And for those who maybe that's something you've been living with and you're like, I, I never knew I could get rid of it. Then I want you to know, we've created a space for you because I don't expect that you're like, oh, OK, well, then sign me up for it because I don't even know what that means. That one of the things that we do is we carve out spaces for people to explore and and to have a dialogue and understand the decisions they make and process through what does the Bible really mean for their lives and whether they really believe about God. And we, we have a, a, a group that we'll be meeting soon, and it explores faith and it explores this idea of grace. And if you're interested, if that's something inside of you today, you're like, yes, that is where I am, then in the app, starting point, you can click on the life group area and you'll see Exploring Grace. Or swing by starting point and just say, hey, I want to, that grace and faith class. I want, to, I want to be a part of that. And for those who are maybe, you're like, I, I know that I need to have someone in my life because I don't want to allow that darkness to creep in so that stuff like that can just build up. That's why we have groups here. That's why people serve together. That's why they do life groups together. And you can serve on Sunday or you can be a part of a group that meets in someone's house where they take the message and work it out through kind of the personal life and the professional life a little bit deeper than what we would have time for here. And maybe that's just you clicking on starting point or swinging by starting point today. And then next month, we're going to spend October going through a series I'm really excited about called Guardrails. And it's about uh, this, this idea of how do we and what do we put in our lives to direct and protect ourselves from the tendency to be our own worst enemy? I don't know about you, but the biggest enemy in my life is me. And this series called Guardrails through the month of October is going to unpack that. And So what does it look like in our relationships, in our calendar, in our finances? What does it look like to put guardrails that can direct and protect us in our lives? But here's what I want you to know. That over us is a God who says, I desire to bring life not death.